You've got questions, he's got answers Even though he may not understand, he'll talk anyway You've got problems, he won't solve them But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face Science, faith, and life Well, hello, my friends. It is good to talk with you all again. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, that weekly podcast where we believe that every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. I'm your host, Mike McCarg, for this, the final episode of Ask Science Mike. Now, before uh, anyone panics or it takes your breath away, it is not the last Mike McCarg podcast. It is not the last thing I will make. It is simply the last episode of the podcast, Ask Science Mike. We are starting Monday. Some major changes that have been in the works for months, and I'm just totally thrilled to share them with you because Ask Science Mike is going away, and it is being replaced by a new show called The Cozy Robot Show. The Cozy Robot Show is a lot like Ask Science Mike in that we explore curiosity about the world and about our feelings together. What's different from Ask Science Mike is that the Cozy Robot Show will be a live program uh, that will go out on streaming web video. So Monday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern, you can go to CozyRobots.com watch and see the show. The first episode will be September the 7th, again, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern at CozyRobots.com slash watch. Now, don't worry. There's still going to be a podcast version. So that show will then come out as an audio edition on this very podcast feed on Wednesday. So we'll probably do, I don't know, three episodes, four episodes, and it'll still look like Ask Science Mike in the feed because if we switch it immediately, people won't realize it's the same show. So there'll be a transition period where you'll see the Ask Science Mike art, you'll see the Ask Science Mike name, and then it will move over to the Cozy Robot Show. And so if you listen right now uh, to me as a podcast, you'll listen to this new show as a podcast. It'll sound great as a podcast. There won't be anything... Uh, restricted to visuals alone. But because it's a live program, I will get to interact with those of you who choose to be there during the recording. So I'll be able to see and respond to your comments as the program is recorded. We have all kind of wonderful segments planned. Um, It's going to be a really fun show. I'm very excited about it. We did a a pilot episode for my patrons um, and got some great feedback and took that to heart and... um, you know, just it's a brand new show, brand new energy. Just so excited about it. We've got some exciting guests that are going to be a part of that program. Uh, we are, we're going to move to a topical focus, and um, which means on a given week, we will look at a particular topic. And every single week, there will be a segment called Ask Mike. And Ask Mike. Uh, is an homage to Ask Science Mike, the show that got us this far. But it's changing in that now you'll be able to send email questions like you've always been able to send a written question. But now you can send in a video question and your face is on screen and I get to see you ask your question and respond uh, in a more personal way. 
So we need your questions. Uh, the first episode of the Cozy Robot Show is going to be about fake news and conspiracy theories, which is a very timely topic. And then we have additional topics lined up. You can learn more by going to CozyRobots.com slash AskMike. And that is where you can go upload a question and be a part of this new program. It is by the same team that brings you Ask Science Mike every week with some new additions. Uh, like I say, we've been working really hard on it. I'm very, very excited about it. And it is something people have asked for. You know, I got my start in podcasting. I will always be a podcaster. Uh, but there's a lot of people who listen to this program who are younger. Um, you know, Gen Z, even young Gen Z, people who still have the word teen in their name in some cases or in their early 20s. And they've told me that they love interacting with me on social media, uh, but that they don't really do podcasts. And so uh, streaming web video is going to let everybody in this community get a chance to be involved. But again, the podcast format is sticking around as well. Okay. So episode 240, the last episode of Ask Science Mike. Next week, September 7th, episode one of the Cozy Robot Show premieres at CozyRobots.com slash watch. Uh, now, some of you are, are early adopters, and you go straight to that URL. There's nothing there yet. We're going to launch that website really close to the launch of the show. But if you go to CozyRobots.com slash AskMike, that is ready to go right now. Uh, in terms, you know, how oh, well, does this work? Well, we're going to be broadcasting on uh, Periscope, which is Twitter's platform, YouTube, uh, Twitch, and Facebook simultaneously. Uh, then it will go out on Instagram TV uh, as a replay, and then on the podcast feed as a replay as well. So it's going to be everywhere. However you watch uh, streaming video, we will be there. However you listen to uh, podcast audio, we'll be there too. Uh, so really, really excited to share that with you. Number two, uh, we are about to have our first flight of the Overview Program. The Overview Program is an evidence-based system for managing life transitions hosted by me. And the first one of those will begin in September. It's just about full. Uh, but we are also accepting applications for people who'd like to join us You know, in, in later programs. The second program will probably begin in November. Um, really excited about this. I've got a couple of people in the Overview Voyages program already, which is the one-on-one -on -one version of the Overview program, where it's just me and you on a weekly call to go through this system of, of navigating life transitions. And then the first group, Overview Stations, will start this September. It's basically a weekly call with me uh, in person, and uh, we go through a system for understanding how to contextualize and navigate the kinds of transitions we face in life, whether those are face transitions, uh, career transitions, gender and sexuality transitions, um, new cities, new relationships, new anything, uh, tends to put us at odds with the people uh, that we've known. Our existing community tends to get stressed out by change. And this is a way to get the support you need to successfully navigate a transition. Um, and to suffer less as you do so. Uh, so, you know, I'm really excited about that. If you'd like to learn more, you can go to overviewprogram.com. Okay? Uh, I'd love to see you be a part of that. So, 
CozyRobots.com slash watch to watch the new program at 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern every Monday. CozyRobots.com slash AskMike to send in your video questions for that program. And if you'd like to be a part of the Overview Program or just learn more about it, go to OverviewProgram.com. And now what do you say? Let's get it started. Hi, Science Mike. I wanted to start out by saying a big thank you to you for um, all the work you do with this show. I don't think I or any version of my faith could have survived graduate school without uh, the grounding that I've found here and the rationality. So big thank you for that. Uh, as a PhD in electrical engineering, um, obviously I live and work in a very male-dominated field. I'm sure you remember several years ago this manifesto put out by a Google employee about how men are biologically superior to women in technical skills like science and mathematics. And I know that, of course, most of that has been uh, debunked. Um, and I know that the reason that there are so few women in fields like mine has much more to do with socialization of girls and boys. Um, but I do have questions still related to the biology of it. Um, for instance, we, we know that at any given time, the best male sprinter in the world is probably faster than the best female sprinter in the world. And that's true against most, true across most physical disciplines. So my question is about the biological differences of the brains of men and women. Is there any uh, physiological difference in the brain structures of men versus women? Uh, and do we expect that to have any effect on these sorts of skills? So any proven effect? What's the science on that? The second question is maybe a little closer to my heart, which is, can we ever expect changes? We've been aware for some time now of um, how the socialization of girls versus boys affects their choices on what kinds of fields to, to pursue in academic studies and uh, what kinds of jobs they'll end up in. But at the same time, there hasn't been much change. For instance, my mother is also an electrical engineer, and the percentages of men and women in her classes are no different than mine. In fact, there might have been fewer girls in my classes than were in hers in college back in the 80s. So the question is, is there any hope? Are we seeing changes in these numbers? Are girls becoming more common in science and math? I feel such sadness hearing a woman with a PhD ask if the ear is any hope. I just, I had to start by naming that. A, a deep sadness in my heart. If anyone ever wonders why I am a feminist, that is why. That is why 
I am a feminist because a woman who has a PhD is asking if there is hope for true inclusion for women in engineering and in STEM. So we'll get back to that. Let's start with the brain stuff. You know, uh, way back uh, when Finding God in the Ways came out, my first book, that was in 2016, uh, I had this bit that I did on stage a lot that made it into the book. And whenever I did this bit, I got so many laughs from the audience. And as a former, you know, fundamentalist, uh, conservative, religious person, uh, I knew that my understanding of science and was was just very stunted uh, compared to many people who grew up in more secular circumstances or even just non-fundamentalist circumstances. And so uh, I did a lot of um, speaking engagements at churches where I basically uh, helped people kind of get a boot camp in some basics of science and science literacy. So the more I could work in good peer-reviewed science into a given talk, the better I felt. And so gender differences are an easy way to warm up most crowds. And um, and it played into a point I wanted to make about the brain and faith. So I would talk about the difference between men and women's brains and the way the two hemispheres communicate with each other along a channel of nerves known as the corpus callosum. This was based on real research a study that was published in 1995 that basically said the two halves of men's brains don't talk to each other as often as the two halves of women's brains. And that fits in really well with gender stereotypes in our culture. And um, people would laugh. I had a lot of jokes, you know, about I'm not going to rehash the jokes. Uh, introducing them as jokes make them, makes them less funny. Uh, if you're curious, if you got a copy of the book, you can, you can read in there. Uh, by the way, Finding God in the Ways was originally called Split Brain. That was the original title of the book. That's how deep uh, that story is in that text, in that premise. Um, and guess what? Uh, further research has really undercut that 1995 study. Um, when we look at the study of brains, the field known as neuroscience, especially neuroscience that involves brain imaging. We are dealing with very small sample sizes. And we have a problem in all of science, neuroscience included, where scientists aren't great statisticians. And often, um, even if they do a study that is rigorous and well-composed, and even if they don't have a limited sample size, uh, the phase in which the numbers are analyzed, things can get pretty rough because statistics is its own discipline. And uh, frankly, one that baffles me. Uh, I, I'm not speaking from some pedestal over real scientists here as a podcaster. <laughs> um, but I trust statisticians when they tell me that scientists often do a poor job with statistical analysis. And, um, and so when we look at a lot of like gender different studies in brains, we either find, you know, poor statistical analysis, we find small sample sizes, or we find, um, just a, a, a non-rigorous methodology behind that study. 
so that you can discount most of the studies that reveal differences in brains on those grounds. And the ones you can't. We have another problem with gender differences in brains, you know? Our brains are shaped by our lives, literally. Our brains are incredibly plastic organs, and the types of things we do and the types of things we think and feel affect the anatomy of our brains more so than, say, our hearts, our lungs, or even the muscles of our bodies. And so it is so hard to talk about neurophysiology independent of social factors and cultural factors. It's very, very difficult. Different societal roles and developmental differences, meaning the, the different ways, for example, that boys are treated from girls in childhood, literally shape our brains because of neuroplasticity. So many of the differences we could find neurophysiologically, we cannot say definitively that those are in some way you know, inherent to men and women's physiology. Um, there's a great book that I've got a link to in the show notes called The Gendered Brain, The New Neuroscience That Shatters the Myth of the Female Brain. That, if you're curious about this topic, is a, a terrific read. Uh, I enjoyed it a great deal. Um, I also linked to an article called Neurosexism, The Myth That Men and Women Have Different Brains. I haven't read either of those in some time, but they're so baked into my thinking uh, that they, without question, influence the way that I answered your question. Now, that second part, is there any hope? Is there any hope for change in STEM fields? I think there is, and here's why. Change has already happened. Change has already happened. There was a time when the number of women working in the doctorate level of electrical engineering was zero. Now that's terrible and true. When we talk about social change, this is a drawn-out process. So we have to work on cultural norms and expectations. We've been doing a lot of that work. The idea that a woman could be an engineer is increasingly less shocking to increasingly more people. More and more people find it less and less shocking that a woman could be an engineer or a scientist or a technician or technologist or a mathematician. But we also have to reform educational access. We have to make it so women are more readily admitted into educational institutions. Once they are there, the culture of those institutions has to be reformed in ways that are less hostile to the presence of women. We have to reform the work culture that happens after education. Companies and Nonprofits and research institutions, their culture has to change to be more accommodating for women and to give women access. And critically, the management philosophy of these organizations must change as well. And ultimately, I don't think change really happens until inclusion happens at the management level, right? Until then, we kind of have tokenism. 
And that's a long process. And that process, unfortunately, because humans are so darn change-resistant, involves significant advocacy efforts that many people find upsetting and even threatening, you know? Um, I used to work in information technology, which historically is not the most woman-friendly field in the world. And when I first entered IT, and I worked for some large organizations, uh, the women who were in those organizations were often restricted to clerical roles. They weren't in clerical roles, then they were either objectified sexually or became somehow an honorary boy, which is equally ridiculous, right? If you assimilate, basically act like a man, then you get to be one of the boys. And then later in my career, um, and I, by this time I transitioned into IT management, um, I was luckily enough to work with a team that was actually um, excited and actively supportive of women being a part of the team as equals. And that was some of the most rewarding and fulfilling time I had in the corporate world. Um, and, the, you know, we're talking about um, an 8 or 12 year time difference between those events and going from large institutions and government institutions to, you know, a small uh, creative company. So the culture is a little more forward thinking there to begin with. And I think that's just what we're looking at. We're looking at more hard work by feminists and men who are true allies to feminists um, in opening up these spaces and pushing back on the gendered assumptions. Um, you know, I looked up some statistics and I included links to them. And true to your observation, the numbers are terrible for STEM and women. They're really embarrassing. And not just in the United States, but worldwide. Kind of the best case uh, globally is women in STEM get up over about a third of the workforce, which is pitifully low. Um, but we do also see a positive trend over time, and that gives me hope. But it's easier for me to have hope sitting here in my home office. Um, you know, my daily workplace is me, myself, and I. <laughs> it's, you know, um, I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not part of a, a, a company culture. There's a team that helps produce this media, but we all work in our, our homes and our own places and collaborate as needed. And um, so it's, I think it's easy for me to feel hope looking at some figures in a table compared with your lived reality of looking around the office and seeing how few women are there with you. Also in that data, one thing that I found, a lot of women and a lot more women are entering STEM uh, at the, at the um, graduate and postgraduate level. 
and entering the workforce than ever before. Here's the problem. A lot of women are exiting too. A lot of women are exiting at the graduate level more than men at the postgraduate level and at the professional level. So what does that tell me? It tells me we're, we're doing our work reforming the culture. Women are able to imagine themselves in STEM roles. But the culture of our graduate, postgraduate, and doctorate programs and STEM companies is still hostile towards women. So that reformation work must continue, which, by the way, you are doing by existing. You are doing that just by being there. By normalizing a PhD level electrical engineer who is a woman, you are making space for more women to stick it out in a difficult culture and ultimately at some point to feel at home. So I hope if there's some hope you can find, it's the same hope that I'm finding. And that's in you. You just showing up unapologetically, doing your work, carrying your expertise, which is considerable. You doing what you are doing is changing the world. The world is becoming what you hope for by the simple act of you existing. Ask Science Mike would not be possible without the support of our amazing sponsors. And this week, I'd like to tell you about one of my favorites, BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp is an online counseling service that works with individuals, couples, with teens, uh, and works through all kinds of life issues. It's the support you need from a professional, licensed, and vetted counselor. And what I love about BetterHelp is that they match you to a therapist. So you go to their site and you fill out a questionnaire and then they have a team of professionals who finds a professional therapist with the training and experience in the particular issue that you are facing. Now, you know, it's not always a fit personality-wise a therapist. That's normal. Finding a new therapist is incredibly difficult. BetterHelp makes that easy, too. You can request a new therapist at any time. And once you're matched with your therapist, you can communicate in the way that feels most natural and palatable to you, whether that's messaging uh, or chat, uh, text chat on your computer, phone calls, video chat. However you feel comfortable, BetterHelp is there for you. So you can schedule live sessions like it's traditional therapy uh, on the phone and with video chat, or you can message your therapist anytime with no scheduling needed. Uh, it is a wonderful service. And um, what I particularly love is in this time of social distancing and physical distancing and COVID-19 is uh, being able to connect with a therapist online helps you not have to worry about you know, waiting rooms and offices and exposure and all those kinds of things. You bypass all of that. It's a great service. And also, if you live in a smaller city or in a rural area where a particular type 
of therapist or training isn't available, BetterHelp.com tears down those geographic access barriers as well. So why not get started today and get 10% off your first month's service? Uh, and you can do that by visiting BetterHelp.com slash ScienceMike. Our next question is an email question. It reads, Hello, Mike. In a long-ago episode, you were talking about probabilistic wave functions. And if I recall correctly, on one of your social media pages, you described yourself in terms of a collapse into matter. First of all, what was your line? I loved it, but I can't find it, and my memory is falling short. Second, your brief mention of this concept in that episode has plagued my faux scientist mind. I, like you, am an uneducated science lover. And my attempted research into the field and concepts of probability wave function collapse have yielded nothing that is palatable to a novice. Please help. If a wave function collapse is triggered by an observer, this denotes reality outside of the wave function. But if mass wave functions collapsing in proximity to one another define reality, does it, then where does the observer come from? Or are multiple wave functions observing each other and thus causing each other's collapse in a chain reaction resulting in reality? If my consciousness is an observer causing wave function collapse chains reactions, would it not be different from the collapses caused and therefore perceived by your consciousness? This would seem to support the idea of multiple, if not infinite, coexisting and overlapping realities. But in this context, it would seem distinguishable from the multiverse idea and that these infinite coexisting and overlapping realities would also be constantly interacting with one another and perhaps in some ways reliant on one another. Can you explain how probabilistic wave functions and collapses work and their relationship with matter, reality, consciousness, and perspective Love you, love your work, in peace, love, and entropy, Danica. <laughs> I hope you can hear the genuine joy in my voice as I read your question, Danica. Uh, I loved it in so many ways. One is it is so familiar to me. I remember when I first started to study quantum mechanics seriously and your head starts to spin as you feel like you are on the verge of a total understanding of the most mystical reality that surrounds us. And two, I was thinking about how many wonderful listeners of this program simply cannot even follow the question, because by the time you wrote this, you have done some significant study on your own, um, and... <laughs> So let me start by saying this answer that I'm about to offer in response to that question will probably be the hardest answer to follow in all 240 episodes of this program. And I would like to apologize to all of you who have not studied and are not interested in quantum mechanics. But remember what this show is about. Every sincere question deserves an honest and non-judgmental response. And so it is my delight to dig into these questions. 
your first question, what was the line about probabilistic wave functions? And I will tell you, I have no idea. It would shock you how many things I say and then forget. This is absolutely one of those. And if I said probabilistic wave functions, which I absolutely believe that I did, what I was referring to was quantum wave functions. And quantum wave functions are wave functions that we understand and relate to probabilistically. Uh, so, yeah, but if you want, you'll find more fertile soil if you look up quantum wave functions instead of probabilistic wave functions. Now, what is a quantum wave function? I find it helpful to consider the words themselves. Uh, quantum is, simply means the smallest divisible unit in a given physical system. Photons would be a quanta of light. Quarks would be a quanta of matter, as we understand it today, except when they're not, <laughs> which is why quantum physics is pretty confusing. Um, and then a wave function is a mathematical description or system describing an oscillating factor or measurement. Oof, what the heck. If you imagine an ocean wave going up and down, and we were to graph the height of that wave on a sheet of paper, you would see a wave on the paper that looked like a lot like the ocean wave itself, okay? So that would be a wave function. Now, quantum wave functions are different and special because they are not real. I'll say that again. Quantum wave functions are special because they are not real in the way the wave function describing an ocean wave is real. This is because quantum wave functions must use imaginary numbers to be descriptive, and then we use math to cancel out the imaginary values on two sides of an equation in order to extrapolate and project real values that help us assign the probability of the range of outcomes for a given property of a quantum particle, like its position or its momentum, for example. And uh, a quantum wave function collapses from something called superposition, and superposition is when you have multiple eigenstates that can describe a single particle or a single quanta. Uh, and when that moves into a single eigenstate, an eigenstate there being, this is extremely complex, um, similar to uh, a projection of an eigenvalue, um, which itself, you kind of have to understand differential equations to even <laughs> talk about. Um, but that's when we talk about a collapse, we're talking about finding out something more definitive about a quantum particle. Okay. So, um, an observer in quantum mechanics, and this is very important. This is where a lot of confusion with quantum mechanics comes up. An observer doesn't mean like consciousness. It doesn't mean awareness. An observer is a particle interaction. So for an observer, for me to observe my microphone that I'm talking into, light has to bounce off of that microphone and then strike my retina, right? That causes that collapse. That is the observation. That photon it represents the observer. That is what carries the information to me. 
And so that's fundamental on observers. But then when you get into your other questions about like, do wave functions cause each other to collapse? Probably. <laughs> do wave functions observe each other? Is 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 reality kind of a, a symphony of uh, wave functions causing each other to collapse? Or is there special types of observers? These are unanswered questions in quantum physics. Um, I've heard more deterministic notions of quantum physics, and I've heard more kind of uh, almost symphony of multiverse, that, that there's an infinite number of valid perspectives in reality. And uh, that's just a debate that physicists have. So the good news is uh, that you have done enough study to get to the great questions, and the great questions in my mind are the one that no one has an answer to yet. I think that's really exciting. But I only think that's exciting after I had enough time to feel frustrated by it. <laughs> because for me, for a while, cosmology and quantum mechanics was a new religion, a new way for me to get a hold onto reality and control it through understanding in the way I once did using theology. And so I was very frustrated when I went far enough in my study of quantum mechanics to find that in some of the most fundamental questions, there were not definitive answers. And in many cases, there were no answers at all. And now I just delight in it. The search for knowledge and information and understanding is so delightful to me. Sometimes I'm almost disappointed when questions have definitive answers. So, Danica, I hope that you continue to read and learn and grow and delight in quantum physics and every area of the sciences that you enjoy. Um, and I hope that you're not too let down that in terms of the relationships between wave functions and matter, reality, consciousness, and perspective itself, well, gosh, I don't have answers to those questions because nobody does. Hey, Science Mike. I was wondering, why do human beings talk to babies and animals, especially our pets, in funny voices. I don't hear us using those voices in any other situation, and it seems like a pretty universal behavior. And I wonder if that is culturally driven, or if there's anything uh, in our biology that drives that, or some combination. Thanks. One of the reasons I started a show about science is there is something frustrating in science media to me, and that is someone would have a question about how something works, and then a science literate journalist would write an article about it, and they would look up the different theories and hypotheses that surrounded that question, and then write one of them as like definitive, and then write others as kind of dissenting viewpoints. And uh, I often found that in a search for readership, publications overstate their certainty. <laughs> and this is one of those times. In fact, this is one of the questions that inspired me to launch Ask Science Mike in the first place. Because the fact is 
to my knowledge, we don't definitively know where that funny sing-songy voice comes from when we talk to babies and animals because you're just so cute, right? Um, I have a special voice I use to talk to my dog Ruby with. Um, I think it is so, it wasn't the one I just did. That was so subtle compared to my Ruby voice. Uh, it, it is obnoxious in its, uh, <laughs> cuteness. Uh, but I just, she, I see her furry face. I can't help myself. And, uh, I've often been curious about where this comes from. We do know that it is common to the point of near universality in our culture and most other cultures as well. Uh, this is often called infant-directed speech or mother ease. And although there are cultures who don't use a specific infant-directed speech tone or timbre, uh, or timbre, I suppose, is the pronunciation of that word. Timbre, timbre, not, honestly, no idea. Uh, anyway, uh, there are cultures that don't use it the overwhelming majority of cultures do. And the cultures that don't use infinite directed speech, not infinite, infinite, infant directed speech, uh, they tend to not, they have some restrictions about communicating with babies in the first place. Um, the sing-songy motherese that we use, uh, it is commonly used with both infants and with animals. Interestingly enough, it seems to be used in context where the being we're addressing, a child or an animal, we believe has a limited capacity to understand our speech. Babies and dogs, to our understanding, just they don't have significant language skills. Now, what's interesting is we don't use motherese when speaking to someone who does not understand our language, but does understand other languages. So I wouldn't go up to a, a foreign language speaker and say, oh, do you know where the potty is? Like, that's not how we do that. In the same way, I wouldn't walk up to someone who speaks American Sign Language and use a sing-songy baby voice. Somehow our brains understand uh, when people have a capacity for language in general, even if it's not our language, versus not having linguistic capacity, as is the case with infants and dogs. Now, is that cultural? Is that innate? I have no idea. I have no idea. And I couldn't find any convincing cases uh, that, that uh, sold me. Um, now, it is interesting in one experiment that puppies really do respond more readily to infant-directed speech than normal vocal tones. Uh, although with adult dogs, those differences were not found, and, and researchers surmise that's probably because adult dogs, what they care about is the familiarity of a voice over the tone of a voice. My dog Ruby would much rather hear my voice in a normal tone than a stranger's voice in a sing-songy one. Um, and that's because Ruby is uh, perfect in every way, for those of you who did not know uh, that she is the single greatest living dog of today or any point in human history. So, uh, <laughs> I do love that dog. We have the best snuggles, y'all. We just, we just have the best snuggles. And I'll walk into the room and she'll kind of, she, she has this thing where she puts her head on her shoulder and then tilts her head forward. Like, are you going to come over for a snuggle or do I have to get up? And 
<laughs> that's more than you needed to know. I just love that dog and my affection for her and somehow my understanding that she does not actually conversantly understand English means I use I use Motherese when I speak to Ruby. Motherese. Um yeah, so I've got a couple uh, links if you want to dig deeper in that. But this is one of those, another unanswered, perhaps unanswerable question, although perhaps a little more accessible than quantum wave functions. Uh, what I do know is infant-directed speech is delightful. I can't get enough of it. And uh, so I'm completely unselfconscious about using that manner of speaking when I am talking to animals. Although I will admit, I don't actually use it much with babies. I tend to talk to babies in a very similar manner as I would talk to an adult, which probably describes my children's uh, vocabulary scores. <laughs> they really, they had to pop open the dictionary and the thesaurus in, uh, in pre-K in order to understand what dad was asking them to do. So <laughs> anyway, uh, great question. I really enjoyed it. And here we have it, the final question of Ask Science Mike. And it came from email. Hey, Mike, I hope you're doing well these days. My question has to do with Jordan Peterson. And I want to preface this by saying that I have no interest in instigating an internet takedown, as I'm sure you don't either. But I have heard you obliquely reference his work in the past, and I was wondering if you would be willing to go into a bit more detail. Specifically, I am curious about the ways in which you see Peterson's work appeal to people and draw them in in this rather dual process type of way, where he seems to speak on this highly intellectualized and neutral way while simultaneously igniting fierce and ardent in what often seems like very exclusionary stances from his followers. The reason I ask about this is because I've had several friends and family members suggest his work to me, and I have tried unsuccessfully to pinpoint why I find him deeply, deeply saddening and painful to listen to. I've listened to many of his lectures in order to put together a cohesive argument as to why I disagree with him on maybe the more meta-processing level of his work, but each time I've tried to do it in the past, I find myself just feeling very heavy and raw and have given up trying to form an intellectual critique of his stances due to this emotional response. Would you perhaps be able to tackle this one? Why is he appealing to so many and in what ways do you see his work as harmful, especially to marginalized populations? Thanks so much, Carrie. Carrie, thank you for your question. Even though I don't like talking about Jordan Peterson at all, and not just because his followers can be aggressive, and not just because there's some overlap in our followings. A lot of the men who listen to Ask Science Mike are also listeners and followers of Jordan Peterson's work. I'm not afraid of pushback. I get pushback. Um, I get some of the sadness and the heaviness that you feel 
trying to confront Peterson's work. I feel that too. Um, when people speak of emotional labor, some people roll their eyes and say that's not a thing. But it is true that if a viewpoint is sufficiently antagonistic to your existence or the existence of people you care about, there is an emotional process required to engage that work. And often white men find that notion ridiculously. And of course, I believe this is because white men are so deeply culturalized to be dissociated from their feelings which is one of the tools of white supremacy. And already I have lost Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson embodies this unexamined white male lens and the way society treats that white male lens as the so-called neutral frame. If we reduce everything to ideas, then everything is up for discussion and debate. So the Petersons of the world tend to deny that, for example, discussing incarceration rates for black men has a different emotional consequence for a black man and a black woman than a white man or a white woman. And that's the big split. In terms of your specific question, an intellectual takedown of the work. No, I can't do it. <laughs> but that doesn't matter. People who are better writers than me and better thinkers than me have already done it. So I've got two links for you. Uh, one is called Why Jordan Peterson is Always Wrong, which is a clickbaity, terrible headline for a quite good article. Jordan Peterson is not always wrong. Nobody is always wrong. Uh, but that does get the clicks. I get it. And then the other one, more reasonably, is titled Jordan Peterson Explained. I recommend them both because they will go in point by point into the things Jordan Peterson says and the controversy that surrounds them and why it's upsetting to people. And that will give you lots of fodder for discussions with your friends and family who recommend Jordan Peterson. And instead, I would like to offer you my experiences because I am so similar to the core constituency of Jordan Peterson's audience. I am white. I am a man. For most of my life, I identified as straight. And so I kind of, I fit that, that box, Jordan Peterson's followers, the people that buy his books and follow his media overwhelmingly are white and male and generally straight as well. And many white men like myself um, were raised to be good people. And want to be good people. And we're taught that, you know, racism is something we did away with in the civil rights movement. We all got together. We listened to that intelligent Reverend King. And we just stopped being racist. And women work now. And we did it. Social transformation. Done. 
And then you start encountering people who offer different perspectives. And rather inconveniently, they tend to be people of color. They tend to be black. They tend to be women. They tend to be gay or lesbian or trans or intersex or disabled. And these people start talking about what's happened in their lives in a way that undercuts what you've been told that everyone is equal. And in fact, they tell you, my life has been bad. And in many ways, you have had a privilege because of the ways you're different than me. It's been easier for you to get a job, to get an education, uh, to have family wealth, all of these things. It has added up to a systemic advantage. And many, many men start to wake up. Notice I didn't say woke. But they start to wake up to the inequality in the world. They start to do some reading, some thinking, some studying, and some emotional work. And then they go, this is not okay. Because I'm a good person, I want to be a part of the solution. And then, having read their first book on racism, they do what men are trained to do, especially white men, especially white straight men. And that is what? Lead and teach. And so they show up to social change movements that hundreds of years in the making, ready to fix it. And somebody says, sit the fuck down. What are you doing? <laughs> and that hurts their feelings. And that, by the way, both of those things are valid. Number one, it is valid when a marginalized person from a marginalized group who is doing advocacy work corrects the uninformed contribution of a newly waking white man. And it is valid for the feelings of that man to be hurt. All feelings are valid. What we do with our feelings, however, can be troublesome. And so often it takes one or two or five of these exchanges where a white man feels rebuffed by a marginalized group that he feels like he's here to help. And he says, hey, I'm just here to help. Un unrealizing or unaware that that is further cementing his own privilege the option to not engage in a social change movement or even a conversation about social change. And this is where the Jordan Petersons of the world appear. And they say, yeah, there are problems with the old way of doing things. But these cultural Marxists and these postmodernists are perpetuating a victim mindset that will never fix things. And they put white men back into a place where white men can say, I am not a part of that old white supremacist crowd. I'm not a part of that sexist crowd. I am enlightened and I am intellectual and I am so enlightened that I'm actually enlightened beyond the people who organize Black Lives Matter or the people who organize Me Too, 
or the people who do work around pride or disability. So white men get to put back on that teacher, leader identity, and it is psychologically soothing. And that is why 12 Simple Rules is a mega bestseller. Because men who feel lost in the legitimate critique of whiteness and of masculinity also don't know how to find a home in a truly pluralistic, egalitarian environment. Friends, can I tell you something? I have been told hundreds of times, not dozens, hundreds, I say that word intentionally, by women and people of color and queer folks and disabled folks that they've never heard a straight white man speak like I do. Not that they rarely hear, but that they never hear white men speak about issues of marginalization the way that I do. So what's happening? Because I'm not that smart. (laughs) I am not some enlightened person. I don't have some uh, elevated position of mental health. My gosh, I've had some, some of the most challenging mental health periods of my life in the last 90 days. I am a a barely contained mess, right? And I am a very empathetic person. I will say that is special about me, the degree of empathy I have, but I am not the only empathetic white man in the world. So what's happening? I've been thinking about that a lot and about Jordan Peterson, Carrie. I haven't lost your question. This stuff is hard. Social change is hard. Confronting collective injustice produced by our own lifestyles is hard. And worse, the problems that we're talking about right now, there are no simple solutions. We want, we crave simple solutions where none exist. There is no simple solution to police brutality. There is no simple solution to homelessness. But humans, our fundamental psychological makeup, resist that. We crave simplicity. And so people on all points of ideological spectrums gain huge followings by promising certainty and simplicity. Jordan Peterson is simply one of these people as are most people who are popular public figures who are intellectuals or advocates. Entertainers often get away with this because they don't have to <laughs> they don't have to be known for believing things, just making you laugh, make you cry, whatever they do. And Peterson's oversimplification is simple. He is conflating the victim mindset of personal psychology with victimhood in a sociological or social context. Here's what I mean. It is disempowering. 
in your personal psychology to have a victim mindset. And recovery and re-empowerment following trauma often involves being able to move out of and beyond a victim mindset on a highly personalized journey with the support of a mental health professional. I am a survivor of sexual assault. And for me to function as a person, I had to go through a very difficult multi-decade journey of moving out of victimhood in that situation to feel empowered. And that was important. And when we study psychology, we understand that focusing on an internal locus of motivation and control are important when we focus on the things that we can change and make those changes there no matter what our external circumstances we can be happier and we can be more fulfilled those things are true and just because those things are true doesn't mean that victims do not exist just because moving out of a victim mentality can be a positive movement in personal psychology does not mean there aren't corrupt and oppressive systems that impact huge groups of people. White supremacy isn't a myth because of the psychology around a victim mindset. And this is the fundamental, in my mind, misunderstanding that Jordan Peterson is peddling to his audience because for a woman working in an environment, for example, with a PhD in electrical, electrical engineering, and there's very few women around, it's not just a matter of her not having a victim mindset. No, the entire culture actually does need to be reformed for women to have equal access in STEM fields. Our medical system really does offer systemic access barriers to people of color and especially black people. And there really are systemic access barriers to disabled people and no amount of telling them to get out of a victim mindset will fix that fundamental threat on their life and their livelihood, and their quality of life. And that, to me, is where Jordan Peterson misses something fundamental, and where so many people like me, who are white and who are male, miss the boat. And they just don't understand. Fundamentally, what my work is about is making people feel safe enough to experience true empathy. It's not an intellectual exercise. It really isn't. As a human person, George Floyd awakens my empathy. 
And as my empathy is awakened, I say, I can't continue to go through a pattern of life that results in people dying the way that George Floyd died. And so I'll make whatever changes I need to make as quickly as I need to make them in order to end that. And then I find out that there are no changes I alone can make, although there are changes I alone can and should make. I will actually need to participate actively in societal movements to address that kind of injustice. And there's injustice everywhere. And as you start to become aware of that, and as you practice empathy, it's heavy. This is why progressive social change advocates talk about self-care and they talk about emotional labor because the Jordan Petersons of the world, they help rock your feelings asleep into numbness. And there's a richness of life when we move beyond numbness, but there's also great challenges and great difficulties. I bet if I met Jordan Peterson, we could sit down over a meal and have a fine conversation. I bet he would say things that made me feel angry. And I hope with the work I've been doing in therapy, I would be able to express that anger in a productive way that's shared information without making Mr. Peterson feel threatened. When I think of Jordan Peterson, the main feeling I feel is not frustration, but empathy. Because I understand like every person alive, Jordan Peterson is moving through life, trying to manage his feelings. And that the things that he believes and teaches and shares, those are all results of a nervous system trying to find safety and belonging in a difficult world. Carrie, that's also true of your friends and family who recommend Jordan Peterson to you. Somehow, Jordan Peterson is providing them a sense of comfort and belonging. Which I believe is one of the most powerful things we can do as people and also one of the most powerful agents for change in the world. On January the 18th of 2015, the first episode of Ask Science Mike came out at the suggestion of followers on Twitter who wished we could have more time to talk about science on the Liturgist podcast. What a journey this has been. I have so enjoyed every week taking your questions on this show in this format. And so many people have been a part of this program over the years. 
Thank you all for listening this whole time. It means so much to me. Greg Nordine, thank you for making this show sound great all these years, even though this last episode, I'm going to do the editing and sound design myself, Andrew Galucky. Thank you for coming in so early and helping me organize the process of getting people's questions onto the program. Caitlin Hermstad, thank you for giving the show new life and then taking over my whole life. Victory Palmazano, Tanner Hearn, Brent Cradle, thank you for coming in and showing me how professionals do their work. And all of you patrons on Patreon, thank you for your faithful and consistent support all of these years. And I don't just mean money. I'm so excited next week to start a new chapter with everyone in the Cozy Robot Show. But it would feel strange to not take a moment to acknowledge what this show has been in my life and what it may have been in yours. And finally, Jeb Botterford. People have sung me that theme song that you wrote in coffee shops and airports and convention centers all over the world. Thank you for that wonderful contribution. I think more than any, it helped shape and inform what this program became. Everyone, thank you for listening. And as always, I can't wait to talk with you again next week. Take care, my friends.